Hello and happy International Women's Day. This is Leanne McLean and coming up now is a little special that I've produced with a friend of mine called Herds and Curds. the sounds of goats in Switzerland. Goats grazing. Goats grazing. Goats eating. Yeah. In Switzerland. Browsing. (laughs) We have the person that was uh, herding those goats in the studio today. It's Carmen Bateson. And I'm very excited to have Carmen here so that we can find out about her extraordinary life on this International Women's Day. It's always good to hear about The amazing things that women do. And I think you have an amazing life, Carmen. That's why I've invited (laughs) you in here. I'm always jealous of your life. It's incredible. Thanks, Lee. And I wanted you to um, be able to tell that to our listeners because I'm sure they'll find it extraordinarily interesting, as I do. So the thing I wanted to ask first was how you came to be where you are now, which is living in France and then working in the Swiss Alps for four months of the year, and uh, this year in particular, herding your own little gang of goats. <laughs> you can probably tell me what you call it. It's a herd. It's a herd. It's not a gang. Um, Actually, it's a trip of goats. A trip? That I think. Wow. Okay. It's a herd. Yeah. We're going to learn many, <laughs> many things, listeners. Um, how did that come to be, given that you were a Melbourne girl? Well, um, the, my most recent cheesemaking life in the Swiss Alps is um, because I fell in love with a French cheesemaker, actually. That's a short story. And his job was in the Swiss Alps every summer making cheese. And so that I then joined him. I guess the longer story is that since 10 years I've been, I've, uh, been a cheesemaker, or nearly 10 years. And, yeah, from living in Melbourne... Well, growing up in rural Victoria or central Victoria to moving to Melbourne to study environmental studies, really, and working alongside my studies at the Friends of the Earth Food Co-op and other food co-ops, I became increasingly uninterested in university and increasingly more interested in food and um, sustainable food and clean food and correct food. And so after 10 years at the Faux Co-op, I left and went travelling, wolfing and working on organic farms. And one of those farms I worked at was an organic dairy making cheese with from 20 cows and, and I loved that experience and I never thought... I wasn't wolfing because I wanted to become a farmer or a cheesemaker. I was wolfing as a means to travel really and, you know, that pleasure of working alongside people and having... Uh, you know, a travelling experience that had a, um, of greater interest than just tourism, of really getting to know a community. And so I spent many months on that farm. And when I returned to Australia, I... Where was it first? Yeah. It was in the south of France, in the mm. Pyrenees. And when I returned to Australia, 
I thought, yes, actually, I want to be a farmhouse cheesemaker. And just to make that distinction, farmhouse cheesemaker from just cheesemaker is meaning that I work with the herd as well. So I'm working with every phase of the cheesemaking process from milking to making to selling, I suppose. And so for me, that's probably the most important. Uh, it's important to define that role, I suppose. And um, so, yes, I was fortunate enough when I returned to Australia to to meet probably, or in my mind, Australia's best cheesemakers. That's Holy Goat in Sutton Grange, Central Victoria. And I... I, I concur. Uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I, I met them and um, I worked with them for a weekend and they offered me a, a job and I was chuffed, actually. So I sort of lived my half-city life at Faux Food Co-op and my half-rural life in Sutton Grange on the goat farm and this was a, my transition to, to the country, actually. Mm. And I just come to Melbourne sometimes now and continue to be a cheesemaker and... I'm still in Sutton Grange seasonally and now in the Swiss Alps seasonally. Mm. And so you also went you went down and lived on Bruni Island as well? I for did. A while. So Where? I lived, uh, that was a small paradise, Bruni Island. So I was the cheesemaker down at Bruni Island Cheese and that's where my current partner came and visited me. It was a setup. I thought it was a professional setup, but it was a it was a romantic setup. <laughs> and he visited me there in the small paradise and so yeah, I was. He a, visited you as a like to do a professional tour of your cheese making. That's right, room. <laughs> but then, actually, then I visited him in his in a professional context as well, to and visited him in his cheese room in the Swiss Alps. So after a couple of weeks together in Australia in cheese, loosely around cheese, then months later I visited him um, in his cheese room in Switzerland as. Yeah, still continuing on my pursuit of professional development in che- in the cheese world. Mm. But it was very fortunate that you actually had spent time in France, was a cheesemaker at the bottom of the earth who was French-speaking and single. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, that's right. Fortunately, yeah, I did worked. speak English. I did speak French because otherwise, yeah, it could never have happened because <laughs> that's still the situation now. Language is... The language between us is continues to be French. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, that that's how you got over to actually living in France. But um, let the listeners know what an alpage is because every every year now that you're living there, um, you go up to the Swiss Alps and work for four months. And uh, what does that entail? Because it's an interesting tradition. So the alpage yes, actually has a very long tradition. The alpage is really a reference to animals grazing um, in the mountains in high altitude areas, um, in areas difficult to to um, access with vehicles or you know um, yeah the uh, isolated I suppose. And so it's animals grazing in mountain landscapes, and so there's. More often than not, a, a cheese production around that. Not all the time. It could be a meat production as well. But in my context, it's a cheese production around animals grazing for the four summer, approximately four summer months. Um, so they graze at different, like as the summer continues, they graze a certain area and then they go high, higher. Explain the. That's right. So part of the part, of, I mean, the alpage originates because for two reasons: one, to manage a landscape, so they're public lands where animals are grazing, and two, because farmers actually um, 
typically have little have little um, ownership land uh, that they actually own. So it means that for four months of the year, they can either cut hay or they can rest their land, and animals can be grazing uh, uh, elsewhere. And usually, it's to cut hay, and which actually means that you have a stock of hay that will get you through winter. So we're talking, and this is in a European context. So animals are shedded for period times, uh, you know, for months in the year. You know, the winter months particularly. Uh, to preserve the landscape, so and also that there's no potential grazing in some areas in winter. So, the so each family would have like a little shed with with a couple of cows or few or. Um, it's how I think is it? in the t- in the context where I I work and where my partner and I work, it's um there's thirty different owners um of animals that are putting their animals on the alpage. Um, and some farmer, some people, not they're not farmers actually. They they might have one cow or two cows, and it's part of the tradition of this particular region in the Canton Valley in Switzerland. And for, but for other people, they might have ten cows or, or fifteen cows. And so they're in, with amongst the thirty farmers that or thirty cow owners that put their animal on the land on the alpage, only perhaps five of them are, are farmers as a profession. Mm. And the others, it's for to maintain. It's a hobby, I suppose, and it's to maintain the culture of this particular cow that they use, which is an Eran, which is a cow that actually is 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 searches for dominance. So it's a very hierarchical animal, a cow, and so actually they're fighting all the time. And this is part of the tradition of that particular area, and it's in a small part of Switzerland, bordering France and bordering um, Italy. So is it? Uh, it's a pretty unusual cow, is it? It's, uh, it is unusual. I mean, it's a great-looking cow. It's a very stocky mountain. You, you can see that this animal is made for the mountains. It's short, stocky. It looks like a meat animal. When I first saw it, I actually thought it was a bull. I couldn't believe that it was a, a cow, actually. But they're always, as I said, seeking um, dominance. And throughout the season, this is observed to see who's um, who is the dominant cow and there's a lot of pre- prestige associated with who is the owner of the most dominant How cow. How do they seek dominance? What do they do to each other? They, they physically uh, fight one another by locking horns, if you like. Mm-hmm. And this can last for one second or it can last for... Um, it can last for an hour, actually. And an extended headbutt. Yeah, an extended headbutt. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so... The the herders do, to explain how the herders actually sort of basically take take notes. So it's part of their role as herders. Mm-hmm. So they're with the herd all day, um, observing who is um, who's fighting and who's uh, winning and losing those fights. And it, it, all of the detail is recorded over the season. And somebody will descend. One of the cows will descend as the queen. Wow! And do they mm. have? A, and they have a little festival. And at the end of the season, there's a festival, and she mm. has a red band around her belly. And so, and, and the cow that produces the most milk has a, a white band. Oh, right. And they all have headdresses. Oh and my paraded god! Through town. Oh my god! That's amazing. And um, are they highly sought after for um, procreation? They they're highly sought after. They they become a very val- financially valuable animal. But I guess the disappointing thing about this tradition is that cows are being highly selected for their fighting potential, their combat p- potential, and um, not for their milk potential. So it's a really interesting milk. It's a really concentrated milk. They don't produce a high amount of milk. So there's the financial value around their milk production is pretty limited. Um, however. 
it's disappointing to not see that this cow has been selected mm. um, for milk production, given that they make a great, they contribute to making a great um, cheese, and the cheese of that particular region is the raclette. Mm. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about just the environment there in terms of the living quarters, who you're living with um, for that four months and like, okay, so raclette is being made by, obviously, by by your partner. Um, so he's the head cheese or the own, he's the cheese maker, isn't he? He's the, 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 the cheese maker and so I visited the last, three years um, my partner on Alpage and um, and worked with him a little bit however the final year this last year um, I'd sort of said I won't come back because I need a job I can't just be my the assistant cheese maker if you like or not that I can't be the assistant cheese maker but there was an inadequate amount of work for me and I wanted to be more hands-on and so the boss of the Alpage um, proposed to me to have goats and I was so thrilled with that idea that's that's a dream because for me the mm, cheese making on an alpage is the pinnacle of um of cheese making for me so that's like the high of my cheese making profession really and so I had 10 goats and made cheese morning and night and our living quarters are so we have a small chalet with um two bedrooms upstairs um, a kitchen and bathroom downstairs, and next to that is the cheese room. So it's quite a tiny little house for eight people at the start of the season. Um, and that's eight. It's eight, it's eight men actually. It's mm. eight men plus me. And so yeah, it is a really um, male-dominated industry. Working on an alpage, um, very few women working on an alpage. That happens, but it's really highly dominated by men. And so, actually, for the first two weeks, I don't stay in that house because there's just too many people and too many men. Too many men, actually. That's <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. So I stay and I drive up to the Alpage each day. I stay in a smaller chalet, which is kind of a dream anyway, because it's mm. this isolated little, no electricity, cold water tap, <laughs> just this, just this Swiss paradise, um, Swiss chalet paradise. Um, that's how I love it. Actually, chalet in that particular region is called a Mayan, and it's divine. I, my dream home with beautiful views of the mountains. So I, for the first two weeks, I just travel up to the Alpage every day and do my working day. And then after, as the season progresses, the herdsmen leave and go to go to higher pasture. So that was that was great. Then I could go and live in the chalet. Mm. And live at work, which is when you when you start your working day at five in the morning is because when is you really say there's, there's two rooms, like everyone is literally sleeping right next to each other. So it's a dorm, and, yeah. and I don't know if anyone's been in a Swiss dorm, but the Swiss dorm is actually they're not individual beds, so the beds are all joined. So it's like a platform bunk, if you like. Mm. So it is really intimate, and it's a particular. It's just, alpage life is like that and it's always been like that and now it's kind of evolved where you know there is actually a cheese making facility but in the past it was part of the kitchen landscape if you like and mm. so now it has evolved but it's still a really simple life it's quite basic it's basic yeah it's very basic yeah you're listening to 3CR radio
Venez, on y go. Allez, bouge. Venez. Okay, so you're listening to 3CR. This is International Women's Day and this is Leanne McLean with Carmen Bateson. As you will probably note in the tone between us, we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I went and visited Carmen very fortunately uh, at the Alpage and and uh, got to see those amazing cows that she was talking about. And the chalets and the cheese room and the dorm where the eight men sleep and was just fascinated and it's actually just such an incredible environment and and so beautiful but the exciting thing that happened for Carmen this year was that she actually managed to um, uh, have her own herd of goats which was an unusual thing and obviously an oddity because you know the whole environment there is so uh, about raclette and the cows and the and even the jousting of the cows and whatever um and so i wanted you to explain to the listeners um basically how it was to be able to have this tiny little herd of goats how were they when you first got them how did you manage them what was the daily um, uh, tasks for you how did you how did you go about that um, well, yeah, it's actually it's a very cow-dominated environment. Um, raclette is um, applauded. Raclette d'alpage is the most, you know, it's really awarded and it's very, um, it's prized. So then to have a small herd of goats, um, there was definitely, well, there certainly wasn't the same amount of value um, attached to goat's cheese, goat's milk cheese, and certainly I had to convert um, many people and I did convert some people. Some people still have memories of growing up with goats and drinking goat's milk, which um, also historically hasn't had the same value. So cow's milk was a commodity. It's, traditionally, it's a really, um, um, you know, even f- maybe 60 years ago, probably most of that community was an agricultural society. So really the value of the cow was highly prized and um, milk was a product they could sell. So goat's milk was something they drank at home. So people have, um, bat, you know, unfond memories of this time where they drank goat's milk or perhaps also it's associated a little bit with poverty. Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to have goats because the, the boss of the Alpage had a small amount of goats and sheep and um, usually he just keeps the kid the kids on the on the sheep but this year he decided to take those kids away um and that I would start milking them and so actually they were accustomed to not being milked so I was hand milking and they didn't like that at all that was not part of the plan and they were very it was very challenging for the first perhaps two weeks three weeks it was very challenging not to move them around but um certainly to milk them so I'd tie them up in the barn and um and I'd work with the boss together, one would hold and one would milk. And so for the first two weeks, it was really a battle. And goats are really very strong-willed animals. They're not, um, if they don't want to do something, they won't. So I get the best ways to um, understand a goat's personality and know how to manage that personality and that behaviour. So eventually, after time, after two weeks, three weeks, um, what you know, it became a habit. And so we were able to... Um, success easily milked them, and actually, as a kind of all the herdsmen left, it meant I was there doing that by myself, and that was really a relief because then it became this lovely 
quiet time, not a battle, not a fight, but just um, a patient period of time milking. And by the end of the season, it was it was very straightforward, very easy, and they, you know, obviously came really willingly as well. And in terms of the movement of animals around the Alpage, they were um, they were free. Um, in parks, pen. in oh, is, is that like a pen or something? They weren't in. A, yeah, they weren't fenced. Goats are, um, aren't grazers; they're browsers. So it means they selectively choose what they want to eat. So they eat, they need quite a diverse diet, despite what everybody thinks they'll eat anything. It's actually not true. They'll they're very selective about what they want to eat, and that might include leaves and bark and some grazing on grass or um, herbs or. Um, flowers and so that's also a really diverse environment and so they where I was at was at 1700 meters so we were just at that um, where there were still trees there was still forest um, and scrub and and grassland or pasture so they had this it was this perfect landscape for goats really to selectively choose what they needed to eat and what and it was interesting to observe them what that what was valuable for their diet and where sometimes I would take them places and think they're going to love this grazing and they would go in a completely different direction. So did they follow you or did you follow them? Or? Um, <laughs> both. How, I did, would, how did you choose? After, so I would milk twice a day so I'd, we'd have that contact twice a day. Sometimes I would follow them. At the particular start of the season I would follow them because I was very worried and actually they wouldn't go f- very far either and I think as the season progressed I let go of um, of their movements and they also went further so we became more independent in a way and however they'd always come down for the afternoon milking but actually they were just free to to go high actually and a goat in the evening they would go very high I think that was an instinctual thing to to set themselves up in a high position where they could see potential um, dangers if you like even though there's not there is actually no um, fox, uh, w- uh, wolves or, or bears in that area, which are potential on other alpages. But um, so there's no risks for them in terms of their their life, their security. But anyway, they chose to to stay out at night time. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I would go and search for them in the morning. And that's what we can hear when you're. That's right, me calling them. Calling and so them. the bells are also very significant because... Yeah, do talk about the bells. They're really a tool for the job. I, you couldn't do that job without... One, it's very beautiful. I love that sound. It's mm. sort of the sound of summer in the mountains. But also it's, you know, when you have a, a landscape, a hilly landscape where you, you know, they might just be in a little ditch or they might be off to the side or they're not in your vision but actually you can hear them so... And every um, herd has its own um, sound as well because obviously there were cow, big cow bells that were near me as well, but I could differentiate between my goat herd and and the neighbouring cows, so that was important. And also in um, conditions, bad weather conditions, you can't see an animal even though they might not be very far from you, but you can actually um, hear them. So it's actually a really important tool and I didn't realise how important until one day it was particularly misty and... I thought, oh, gosh, I don't know which direction to head, but, um, you know, you just eventually you will hear them. And, mm. and they talk to you. And they too. talk back. Not <laughs> always. They're, sometimes they're a bit nasty, but no. they no, that's not true. But they, you can call and they can sometimes I would go up in the morning and call them and actually they'd wake up. I could see them and they'd go higher, which is cheeky and you when had, they should be coming down. <laughs> and you said you had one, one sheep. 
and I have one sheep, Blackie. <laughs> uh, and Blackie was great because he's very domesticated. So Blackie would come and um, when called. So that was I was tried over the season too. None of them had names actually. So Blackie. Um, very unoriginally <laughs> was given that name by yeah. me, yeah, because she's black. But obviously, but but with the bell making, that must be quite a um, oh, just a, a is it a dying art? Or yeah, it is. It, you it's know, like fam- who, who makes it, the bells? Yeah. Uh, it's familial. It's frequently familial, but it is. It's a dying. It's a dying craft, if you like. Mm. And every um, mm. bell maker has a tonality as well. Um, and a quality, so obviously mm. some are better than others. But uh, there's nobody, I, as far as I know, there's no one left in that region or there's one person left in that region making bells and there's kind of talk that, that, that there is no next generation oh. in that. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a shame. Um, and just, yeah, on the, a final question just about the actual cheese making. So um, tell me about the, the goat's cheese that you make, the process that you, you would do each day. Uh, so I would milk and transform the milk um, directly into cheese. So that was – and so I would do that twice a day and that was a decision made really because I questioned the hygiene of our conditions, actually. And um, so it was a raw milk lactic curd that I was making. So lactic meaning that it was a 24-hour fermentation. So I would just chill the milk a little bit. So I'd milk the cow, uh, milk the goat, excuse me, and chill the milk um, and add a little bit of whey from the previous um, fabrication to acidify it, to start the acidification of the milk and add a, a little bit of rennet as well and then um, leave the milk for 24 hours and ladle it the following day. And so I would do that process morning and night. And what, ki- what kind of consistency okay. is, your, is the cheese you were making? Um, so it's fresh cheese, so it's sort of um, – lactic's always a little bit chalky, so I would make it very fresh, so um, just a little um, – <laughs> Like a little firm but um, chalky, very moist, lactic or acidic or um, subtly goaty. I think, you know, when you transform milk straight away to to a cheese, you don't get those really pungent goaty um, flavours or off flavours or bucky flavours. So... And very um, gentle handling of the milk as so well. So it wasn't a soft cheese. It still was like semi No, it is soft high. cheese. It's oh, soft oh. cheese with a high humidity. Oh, okay. And then I would make some that were a little bit more mature so that developed a rind on the outside so yeah. that had a sl- a, a, a less humidity or less moisture in the cheese with a lovely um, geoshikum is the name of the the yeast on the outside or... And which were just natural um, natural bacteria that was in the milk and in that environment. We have to actually end off the program. So thanks for sharing um, all of the above, Carmen. Yeah, and just wish you well in your endeavours in the future. I'm sure you're going back because you sound like you absolutely adored it. It's really, it's a very incredible experience actually. It's lots, mm. it's big, it's big work, it's long work, it's long days, but it's really mm. highly rewarding mm. and incredible. Yeah. We'll do this again because we packed so much information into that and I've got way more questions. Anyway, thank you for, for joining us today, Karma. Thanks, Lee.